Section 11 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Veronica Mead. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases. By John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Inferences and Presumptions of Death. Universal Preference for the Drowning Trick Under the comprehensive term, mysterious disappearance, may be classed a majority of the frauds upon life insurance companies. Adventurers who hesitate at the commission of capital crimes are quite willing to leave behind them, through the dramatic effect of dissolving views, reasonable conclusions or presumptions of their death. There is a remarkable monotony in the recurrence of these disappearances. The favorite method in most cases being by immersion and pretended drowning in some convenient stream of water. It is a trick which is usually planned with a good deal of art and executed with a good deal of skill, yet there is almost always an earmark or trail which, however insignificant to an untutored eye, is sure to lead to eventual capture. The case of a Massachusetts merchant, as related by W. G. Davies, Esquire, in an address before the New York Medical Legal Society, may be taken as the type of a large class. He had embarrassed his affairs by a long-continued series of forgeries, had become somewhat apprehensive of the result to himself, and endeavored to solve his difficulties by a mysterious disappearance from a Fall River boat. He was known to have left New York on it, but was not seen the next morning, and on examination his outer clothing was found in his stateroom, but no trace of himself. His life was heavily insured, he was known to be financially embarrassed, and the first supposition naturally was that he had committed suicide. Unfortunately for the success of his well-laid plans, the victims of his crimes were sufficiently skeptical of his death to secure a large detective force to trace him, and their efforts resulted in his arrest at San Francisco as he was about to embark for Australia. His plan of operation had been very simple. He merely left the suit of clothes he had worn in his stateroom. Taking another from his valise, shaved his beard and whiskers, and stepped forth so altered that no casual observer the next morning recognized him as the man he had seen the night before. Mr. Davies also gives the following particulars of an attempt to defraud three insurance companies by two men named Shepard, who, in the construction of their plot, exhibited more care and greater attention to details. A Potomac River Case About the middle of July, 1873, one George Shepard called at the house of a farmer in Maryland, living near the Potomac River, nearly opposite Alexandria, and asked and obtained permission to spend the night. One of the family was a boy of about sixteen years of age, apparently a simple, well-meaning creature, not overburdened with brains, who seemed to Shepard a fitting tool for the scheme he had in mind. In the course of the evening's conversation, he suggested to the farmer, who spoke of his desire for additional help in harvesting, that he had a brother living with him in Alexandria who would be glad to accept a short engagement. The proposal was accepted and James Shepard entered into the farmer's employ, his brother visiting him almost daily and thus continuing his own acquaintance with the family. After a week of these preliminaries, James, who had by this time become quite well acquainted with the boy already mentioned, proposed to him one evening to go out on the river for a fishing excursion with his brother George, and the two together went to the water, where they found George in a boat. This latter had some peculiarities of construction which are entitled to a special mention. It was an ordinary working boat, about twelve feet in length, having two seats in the center, but none in the bow or stern. 
On the ladder was fastened a platform which projected out over the water some ten or twelve inches, and almost as much on each side, and a rope ran along the outside of the boat from the bow to the stern, and dragged some additional length in the water. The weather was warm, but George wore a rubber coat over his other clothing. In this boat, thus prepared, the party started about dusk. James and the boy each pulling an oar, and George sitting in the stern. They stopped twice and anchored to fish, and having consumed the time until it was quite dark, the night being cloudy, the shepherds proposed to pull up the anchor and go ashore. They were then on the flats between the channel and the shore. The moon was obscured by thick clouds, and the only light visible proceeded from a lighthouse on the Virginia shore opposite to them. On the return trip, the position of the parties was somewhat altered. George sat in the bow of the boat, the boy in the center, pulling both oars so that his back was towards him and his attention fully occupied, and James on the other seat. Suddenly, as the boat was proceeding quietly without any jar or shock, a splash was heard. James cried out that his brother had fallen overboard, and the boy turning his head saw him for one brief instant near the boat on the surface of the water, beneath which he immediately sank. The two rode about for some time and poked with their oars on the bottom of the river, but of course did not find what one of them, at least, knew very well was not there. After fifteen minutes spent in this useless employment, they proceeded to the shore, when the boy was at once sent to the distance to inform a neighbor of the accident, thus giving George an opportunity of coming out from under the stern of the boat, where he had supported himself by the rope, and betaking himself to a place of security. The neighbors were told the story and urged to search for the body. But the rogues were inferior to their English prototypes in neglecting to procure a corpse to personate the absent one, and no body was ever found. James remained in the farmer's employ for a few days longer, until he had recovered from his grief sufficiently to enable him to take the boy before a notary public in Alexandria and have him swear to an affidavit detailing the circumstances of the death of George, as he understood them, and then to two disappear from view for a while. About this time, the police of Alexandria became very much exercised about the mysterious movements of some men who appeared to be living in a swamp near the town, and as it was feared that they were plotting burglaries at least, it was decided to effect their capture. A sudden and unexpected movement resulted in the discovery of the shepherd's boat, containing two men, one of whom escaped at the first alarm, but the other, who proved to be James Shepherd, was taken prisoner. He was found to be heavily armed and to have on his person three policies of insurance which had been issued by as many companies upon the life of his brother George, and the affidavits of the latter's death made by the boy and himself. In his first fright and alarm, he confessed the whole fraud, but subsequently decided to contradict his statements and to plead not guilty to the indictment which was found against him for perjury and swearing to his brother's death. The event proved his wisdom, for the jury before whom he was tried were unable to make up what they were pleased to call their minds, although several witnesses disposed to having seen George Shepherd since the time of his alleged death, and their disagreement was a virtual discharge of the prisoner. He was so emboldened by the success that he had an administrator of his brother's estate appointed in Richmond, and commenced a suit on the policies in his name. It is needless to add that this is not one that gave the company's interest much anxiety. Familiar as they are with the extraordinary vagaries of petite juries. The Curious Case of Sergeant Allen For boldness of conception, for ingenuity in execution, and for unblushing perjury in its support, this conspiracy to defraud is one of the most remarkable of its kind. The facts are not numerous, but are full of interest, and they may be related briefly as follows. 
On the 16th of November, 1865, a man calling himself John H. Sargent applied to the agent of the Travelers Insurance Company of Hartford in Beloit, Wisconsin, for three months insurance against death by accident and obtained a policy in the sum of $3,000. This man came from Rockford, Illinois, the day before, in company with a woman named Mrs. Axa E. Follett, a widow who lived near Pectonica, Illinois. He registered their names at the Bushnell House, Beloit, on the 15th day of November, and they were assigned to separate rooms. They were married the next morning by Reverend S.H. Stocking of Beloit, in presence of Mrs. Stocking, Miss Stocking, and Mrs. Purcell, all residents of Beloit. Sargent applied for his insurance policy about 9 o'clock a.m. after his marriage, stating that he was in a great hurry to take the 10 o'clock train. The policy was written and delivered to him, and was made payable, in case of loss, to his wife, Oxa E. Sargent. Both parties to the marriage were strangers in Beloit. The newly wedded couple immediately left the place, and we heard nothing further concerning them until on the morning of December 15th, when the people of the village of Pecatonica were notified by Henry J. Allen and his brother-in-law Samuel A. Corwin of that place and Emmanuel Hill of Rockford that John H. Sargent, who had been skating, in company with Corwin, on the Pecatonica River during the afternoon of that day, had fallen through an air hole and disappeared under the ice. Thorough search for the body was immediately instituted and continued during the next two days by a large number of citizens, but no trace of it was discovered. Proofs of the death of Sargent and the widow's claim which had arisen under the accident policy were forwarded without delay to the insurance company. The proof papers consisted of the affidavits of Alan Corwin and Hill, all of whom swore positively to the drowning of Sargent at the time and in the manner above stated. Soon after receiving notice of his loss, a special agent of the company visited Pecatonica, and upon inquiry of the citizens as to the facts and circumstances surrounding the accident, he came to the conclusion that, although the body had not been found, there was no good reason to doubt the death of the insured. The people generally expressed their belief in the occurrence as alleged, though there were a few persons who held a different opinion. The officers of the company, not being fully satisfied, directed further investigation, which resulted in their determination to withhold immediate payment of the claim, although there was nothing but vague suspicion to justify delay. The suspicion was founded mainly upon the bad character which the parties, especially Allen, bore in their own neighborhood, and the singular circumstance that Sargent, who had been married only four weeks, every day of which had been spent away from his bride, did not, on his return to the town where she was living, first visit her before skating with his friends upon the Pecatonica River. It was decided to resist at law, if need be, what appeared to be an attempt to defraud the company. A search for John H. Sargent, living, was then commenced, and the inquiry pursued diligently and into distant regions for some three months without success. No one outside of the Allen clan had ever seen Sargent, and no trace of the man could be found except through them, or through the unsatisfactory information which they were willing to give. In the course of this search, an agent of the company visited Beloit and interviewed the clergyman and the witnesses who were present at the marriage of Sargent and Mrs. Follett. He then visited the insurance agent at Beloit, who issued the policy, and learned from him that Sargent pawned a silver watch of little value for the premium of his policy. The watch had been sold, but was hunted up and secured. The hotel register was examined, and it was found that Sargent had registered his name with initials transposed, thus, H.J. instead of J.H. Sargent. 
The latter circumstance led to the belief that Sargent was a myth, and that the name was adopted for fraudulent purposes by the person who contracted the marriage and took out the insurance policy. While one might transpose the initials of another's name by accident, it was thought impossible that such a mistake would occur in writing one's own name. The circumstance recalled the fact that the initials of Alan's first names were H.J., and the thought suggested itself that he might have registered the name, and that in doing so unwittingly committed the blunder. Some of Alan's handwriting was sought and obtained, and lo, the counterpart of the letters forming the signature of J.H. Sargent to the application for insurance, and of H.J. Sargent on the hotel register, was unmistakably there. It was also ascertained that the watch had been repaired at a shop in Rockford for Henry J. Allen some three weeks before the time when it was pawned at Beloit for the insurance premium. Measures were then taken to procure a sight of Allen by the clergymen and witnesses to the marriage, and by the agent who issued the policy. One of these identified Allen positively as sergeant, while all the others confirmed this identification with more or less certainty. In due time, the case of Aksa E. Sargent versus the Travelers Insurance Company was called for trial in the Circuit Court for Boone County, Illinois. The plaintiff testified that she had been married to John H. Sargent on the 16th day of November, 1865, that immediately after the marriage, Sargent took out the insurance policy and then left for the oil regions of Pennsylvania, that on the 15th day of December, following, Sargent arrived in Pecatonica upon the westward-bound train, that on that afternoon he was skating on the Pecatonica River in company with Samuel A. Corwin, and that while so skating, and in the presence of Henry J. Allen and Emanuel Hill, who stood on the bank of the river at the time, he fell into the air hole and was drowned, and that his body never had been recovered. On cross-examination, Mrs. Sargent was unable to give any facts leading to the identity of her alleged husband. She did not know his nationality, she did not know his place of birth, and she was ignorant of father, mother, brother, or sister, or any other relative near or remote. She had simply married him, and that was all. For the same day he left her, and she never saw him again. Being requested to describe his personal appearance, she drew from her bosom a photograph, which she swore was a true and correct picture of her husband, John H. Sargent. Alan Corwin and Hill each testified to their acquaintance with John H. Sargent, and to the particulars of his accidental drowning, of which they were eyewitnesses, as has been stated. Mrs. Almira Allen, wife of Henry J. Allen, testified that Sargent took dinner at her house in Pecatonica on the day of the alleged drowning, and that she heard of the drowning at about five o'clock that afternoon. Abram D. Allen, father of Henry J. Allen, testified that he knew Sargent and gave a description of his personal appearance. He was shown the photograph and expressed his opinion that it was the picture of Sargent. Anne M. Redfield testified that a man once visited Mrs. Follett's house, where the witness was living, and that Mrs. Follett told her the man's name was John H. Sargent. Witness had a distinct view of the man at the time and retained a clear recollection of his appearance. Upon being shown the photograph, she identified it as the picture of the man called Sargent by the plaintiff, Mrs. Follett. Mary A. Larkin testified that she was in Beloit on the 16th day of November, 1865, and was then and there introduced by plaintiff to a man whom she called her husband and by the name of Sargent. On being shown the photograph, she said that to the best of her recollection, it was the picture of the man introduced to her as Sargent. Many other witnesses were examined upon minor points for the plaintiff. The defense to the action was stated to be, in substance, that no such man as John H. Sargent ever existed, that the action was based upon a conspiracy to defraud in every stage of which Henry J. Allen was the chief actor, 
That said, Alan himself, under the assumed name of John H. Sargent, went through the ceremony of marriage with the plaintiff at the time of the alleged marriage at Beloit, and that it was Alan who signed the application and took out the policy of insurance under the assumed name of Sargent, that no person, in fact, was drowned, that the pretended drowning was but another stage in the development of the original scheme in which Alan, Hill, and Corwin were the sole actors, and that no other person was with them at the time of the alleged drowning. Alan skillfully making use of Hill, who was a stranger in Pecatonica, as the party who was alleged to have been drowned. And further, that on the 23rd day of May 1866, a little more than six months after the marriage, the plaintiff was delivered of a child, and that her motive in participating in this conspiracy was to conceal the presumed criminal intimacy of plaintiff with Henry J. Allen, as well as to obtain money fraudulently on the policy. For the defense, Reverend S. H. Stocking testified that he performed the marriage ceremony between a man calling himself John H. Sargent and a woman calling herself Mrs. A. E. Follett, that according to the best of his recollection, and without any reasonable doubt, he identified Henry J. Allen as the same man and the plaintiff as the same woman. Mrs. E. A. Purcell testified that she was present at the marriage of the parties, that she next saw the same man in Pecatonica about four or five weeks previous to the trial of this cause and he was then and is now known by the name of Henry J. Allen, that she had no doubt in her recognition of him, that no one pointed him out to her, that she had seen him since in Beloit, and that she had no doubt he was the man whom she had seen married under the name of Sargent. A clerk to the insurance agent at Beloit testified that, to the best of his recollection, Allen was the man who applied for the insurance. Another clerk identified Allen and had no reasonable doubt that he was the man who applied for the insurance under the name of Sargent. This witness also identified the watch. Joseph Britton, agent for the company, testified to issuing the policy and receiving the watch in pawn for payment of the premium, identified the watch, and identified Allen as being, in his judgment, the man who obtained the policy inside the name of John H. Sargent to the application. The clerk of the hotel at Beloit, identified Lee from the hotel register, and testified that signatures H.J. Sargent and Mrs. A.E. Follett were written by the man who called himself Sargent. A watchmaker in Rockford identified the watch as one which had been left with him October 19, 1865, for repair by Henry J. Allen, to whom he delivered it again October 22nd. The handwriting of Allen, as it appeared in the signature to the application for insurance and in the names upon the hotel register, was recognized and identified by no less than five citizens of Rockford, all of whom had had correspondence with Allen and knew his handwriting. Up to this stage of the trial, which had occupied more than three days, both plaintiff and defendant had presented strong points in support of their respective relations to the cause. The evidence for the witnesses for the plaintiff would seem, certainly, to have been of such a nature that it ought to have been conclusive, and although some of these witnesses, in public estimation, did not sustain a first-class reputation for truth and veracity, it was not probable that they could have been impeached through the evidence of other witnesses upon that fact. The defendant insurance company did not attempt to do this. In fact, it became unnecessary. On the fourth day, the defendant produced the following witnesses, whose brief but overwhelming evidence will best tell its own story. Lauren M. Whitney testified that he lived in Batavia, Illinois, and that he was a photographer by occupation. The photograph heretofore introduced in evidence by the plaintiff, as the picture of the drowned sergeant, was shown to witness, who said, This photograph is of my make. I have the negative from which this picture is made. I took the negative, and know the person who sat for it. 
Witness here produced the negative, which was admitted in evidence to the jury. The name of the person who sat for this negative is James Clare. He lives in Batavia, Illinois, is a tailor by trade, and is still living. I've seen him nearly every day, and I last saw him about an hour ago. Profound amazement pervaded the courtroom, and amidst almost breathless silence, the name of James Clare was called. From a retired seat, the unmistakable original of the plaintiff's photograph at once stepped into the presence of the court, jury, and the plaintiff's astonished counsel. He took the stand and testified as follows. I live in Batavia, Illinois, and am a tailor by trade. I had some photographs taken last fall by Whitney and Kendig photographers in Batavia. Witness was here shown the photograph introduced in evidence by the plaintiff as that of her husband, Sergeant, and said, This is one of the photographs I had taken. I am acquainted with Henry J. Allen, and at one time served under him in the Army. He was then captain of my company. At Allen's request, I sent him this photograph about the 1st of November. I was never known or called by the name of John H. Sargent. I was never married to the plaintiff. I was never drowned in the Pecatonica River. At the conclusion of Clare's testimony, the counsel for the plaintiff made a feeble attempt to use Weller's infallible recipe and proved an alibi for Allen at the time of his mock marriage with Mrs. Follett, but signally failed and in freely exhibited disgust withdrew the suit. The discovery of the final and conclusive evidence was made during the trial. Upon examination of the photograph introduced by the plaintiff as the picture of her husband Sargent, the defunct, it was observed quietly that there were certain marks upon the back of it indicating the name of residence of the photographer, and a shrewd man was sent at once to investigate the matter, with the result as stated. It required pretty lively work on the part of the person in pursuit of knowledge under difficulties, for he had not the photograph itself to take with him. The defendant's counsel had to manage adroitly to protract the trial during the absence of the person sent. When the witnesses were produced in court, the sensation was intensely exciting, and the conspirators' cause hopelessly crushed. Henry J. Allen and the widow Sargent were subsequently indicted by the grand jury of Rock County, Wisconsin, in which Beloit is situated for bigamy. Allen had absconded but was found in Iowa, where he was laid up with serious bodily injuries, which he had sustained by a fallen tree, which he was cutting. He was brought away by the officers of justice on a cot or stretcher as soon as he was able to travel and was committed to jail in Janesville, Wisconsin, in default of bail, as was also the widow. After remaining in jail some time, and thereby punished to some extent, though not so much as their crimes deserved, they were released on nominal bail, which was, of course, forfeited, and they escaped further punishment. This was the result of humane consideration for the widow, who was Alan's dupe, and for her children, and for Alan himself, whose confinement really endangered his worthless life. End of section 11